This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Western Wall. Today we're talking and preparing for Tu B'Shvat. Tu B'Shvat is the, is the uh, New Year's of the Trees, which basically means halachically that, any, um, that w- when you're tithing your produce, there's a cutoff date. So you can't like you can't tithe next year's produce off, you know, fruit from last year and things like that. It's like it's a cutoff date. So so when you give that portion to the Kohen, to the Levite, to the you know, when you're tithing stuff, you have to have a cutoff date. So you're not tithing one thing onto the other, stuff like that. And it's also counting Orla, for example, fruits are forbidden in the first three years until they're consecrated on the fourth year. And so that how we handle that date would be um would be uh, tubishvat. So let's say, for example, you want to plant a vineyard, and um, you'd, you'd, you know you want to get the planting done before today. And I promise you, somewhere in Israel, people are like planting away, like literally today, to get it done by tonight. Because uh, think about it: if you plant after this day, so then you've got to wait a whole other year. But you can literally plant today, and then count your three years from now, as opposed to you understand it would be almost an entire th- less year. If you manage to get your plants in today, it could be there's even a further cutoff date just to make sure it sprouts or t- takes root. I don't know. It could be you can just get the seed in the ground. I'm not sure. That that I don't know. Anyway, so you understand it's it's a very technical holiday, Tubishvat. But leave it to the Kabbalists to take it up a notch, if not up about a hundred notches, and and they take it up majorly. And and how is that? They, well. I mean, there's a hint towards it because, <coughs> because the we don't we do not mourn the temple on this day. So there's certain days of the year where we certain days of the year where we don't mourn the temple specifically. Um, what's called nephilus alpine or falling on on one's face before you know, in, in a certain repentance prayer that we do after the silent meditation where we put our arm on our hand and, and we go down and we say a certain psalm and, and we, you know, it's like a, it's a morning thing and we certainly wouldn't do it on Shabbat and we wouldn't do it on a, hol- on a regular holiday and we don't do it on Purim, we don't do it on Hanukkah, you know, any good day, you know, Yom Tov, so any good day we, that's, you know, considered like through and through special, so we do not do that. We also don't, uh, Sephardim and Hasidim also do the, the uh, confession of Asham Nebogadon. We lean down and we beat our chest to the Aleph bit. And we don't do that also on these specific days. So it turns out that uh, Rosh Hashanah, the new year of the trees, we don't do those things. So it is hinting that there's something going on here, something special here. Because if it really is just a fiscal marker of, of, of vegetation, you know, a purely technical fiscal marker. So then it would not have, it, would, it wouldn't be like considered like a holiday, but yet we treat it like a holiday. Now, take it, uh, give it over to the Kabbalists. The Kabbalists, and um, the Kabbalists kind of took this to mean that this is the day we celebrate fruits. This is, you know, fruit day. It's a day we celebrate the fruits. And... So if you're a little fruity, we're going to be celebrating you. Just kidding. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's the holiday of, of the fruits. 
And <laughs> that sounds funny. It's making me laugh more than it's making you laugh. Anyway, the um, so on this day. Oh, and, and one more thing is that uh, is that there was a student of Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was the was the failed messianic character of uh, you know about four hundred years ago, and uh, he had a student. He had a lot of followers, and he was no slouch. I mean, he was a massive Torah scholar and a, you know great Kabbalist and all that stuff. But but he did uh, go into a full you know full kind of messianic rapture towards the end of his career, which, which failed badly. And, and of course, took a, uh, the Jewish people took a big hit over that. And Anyway, one of his students um, came up with an entire Tubishvat Seder that we, that we celebrate. And, um, and it turns out that, that the rabbis are pretty cool with him. I forget his name. Uh, but the rabbis are cool with him, meaning even though he was a follower of Shabtai Tzvi, uh, we do distinguish him as a uh, as a reputable and and uh, reliable scholar. He was like massive scholar, and and um, and there were many other great great Torah scholars who were who were swept away by the Shabtai Tzvi thing as well. That we that we also would consider, uh, you know, certainly um, on the level. So I, I forget his his name though. It's pre uh, uh, forget his name, or maybe it was a safer. But anyway, he created this like Tubishvat Seder. And and that's uh, that's more or less what gets celebrated. The first Tubishvat Seder I ever went to was was in Santa Barbara, California, at the Reform uh, Hillel. And I remember it being this super special occasion. I mean, they they didn't do much there, you know, that was halachic or anything, and I don't think they really knew how to. But but this creative Tubishvat Seder was my introduction to how to. How to experience the day, and uh, but since then we, my wife and I, since we're married, it's just now 25 years, we have been leading seders, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then really gladly they got smaller and smaller and smaller, which was wonderful because you know what you know what that meant didn't mean people weren't coming to ours, it meant people were going to other ones, and after a while we finally realized we can just go back to our intimate tubishvat seder because. Everyone's got a Tubishvat Seder to go to. And, uh, like, for example, here, raise your hand if you've got a Tubishvat Seder to go to. Yeah, they got Tubishvat Seders, Tubishvat Seders. So, so there are Tubishvat Seders going on throughout the city. Some, some will be large and special. Um, ours generally goes all night, um, but I don't make plans. It's usually about a 10 to 12 hour meditation on, uh, on, the, on the fruits and and we, we really take our time, meaning uh, food meditation. I lead food meditations. I actually get hired to lead food meditations by, like, you know, people coming, groups coming to Israel sometimes want a food meditation. And uh, it's pretty funny to tell, like, you know, really wealthy executives that they won't be tasting anything for the first, for the first two hours of the food meditation. <laughs> I'll never forget this guy because they... they he just like saw food on the table and apparently hadn't eaten that day because he was at my previous desert meditation, which does not include food. And, and apparently he missed breakfast that morning from jet lag because so, the tour left straight to the desert and he missed breakfast. So finally in the evening, we're at Cheyenne and, uh, 
and the, uh, you know, the food's on the table for our food meditation. And he doesn't realize that we won't be eating for the next two hours. <laughs> so he just immediately took food, put it on his plate, and he's bringing it up to his mouth before he dies. And I'm like, I didn't know any of this about the fasting. I didn't know he had missed breakfast and not eaten lunch or anything. So I was just like, I said, stop. <laughs> I just can't express what his face looked like for the next two hours. <laughs> but eventually I finally went over to him and amongst the group and just whispered into his ear that he should probably just take his, some food to the other room and eat and go to sleep and you know, go back to his hotel. So the reason why we, we really wait a long time before we eat the food is we are fixing the sin of Adam and Eve. Because a lot of people don't realize that Adam and Eve were allowed to eat from the, from the fruit of good and evil. They were allowed to eat from that tree. They just had to wait till Shabbat. They were told not to eat it. Don't eat it. So that's all we know from everyone who's read the Torah. Don't eat the fruit. But it turns out that our tradition says that they were allowed to eat from the fruit just after Shabbat starts. They have to first get into Shabbat. And once they're in Shabbat, then they can eat from the fruit. And uh, Meaning they should have waited. They, and they knew to wait, but they didn't wait. And so one of the things we're going to fix throughout our year is our eating. And Tubishvat, one of the main things that we do on Tubishvat night at the Seder is fix our relationship to food. And food is obviously, our relationship to food is, is basically the worst thing that's ever happened on the planet. You know, we'd all have, there'd be millions more Jews in the world and millions of more relatives of ours, if you're Ashkenazi, if it wasn't for food. You know, because, I mean, let me show you. So, Let's see if I can put this on the board somehow. Um, why food is the worst thing that's ever happened. Hey, first of all, food is how this whole madness began. It was Adam and Eve ate from the fruit, and it was too early. Um, by the way, what's the big deal of Shabbat? Like, what is getting, eating fruit that allows you distinction of, you know, to distinguish things? Because they couldn't distinguish things before, obviously. If they're now eating a fruit that causes distinction, that means before that, all was one. Now, think about Shabbat. What do we do on Shabbat? We have 39 things we're not allowed to do. And of those 39 things we're not allowed to do, when you do those things, you've manipulated something. You've taken raw to cooked, off to on, on to off. Live to dead, like slaughtering for food or or whatever. You've changed something. You've manipulated the world in some way. And so, you don't do those things on Shabbat because, because we're, we're, we're pulling out of the way we manipulate the world in the, inside the physical world. It's a state of being as opposed to doing because normally you do, but there's 39 doings we don't do on Shabbat. 39 doings, which when you don't do them, you go into a state of being. Well, a state of being is a very special state because who are you really in your state of being? Like, I know what you're doing right now. You're sitting and listening. That's what you're doing. But who are you being right now? Which is not an easy question. I don't think there's probably more than one or two of you could even answer me who you're being right now. And who, who are you really? I mean, you, I know you have a self, uh, some kind of a uh, self-image, but, you know, how, how long do you think it would take me to poke a hole right through that? You know, it's like paper mache, you know, it's like a sandcastle, you know, how big a wave does it take to knock out your self image? You know, that, how do you know this is true by the waves? I mean, I'm making a bold statement that I could take away your self image like that. 
how do you know it's true, is notice how, how paranoid you are of anyone stepping on it in a social event, in a, in a conversational interaction, in your finances, and you understand, like, you're, you are crazy fragile for it being real. Because if it's anything that's real, it takes away your fragility. And anything that's not real makes you fragile, and yet look how fragile you are with your self-image. By the way, mine's just as fragile. I'm not preaching mine. My self-image is like just as fragile. You know, it's like it's like fine crystal. You know, it's like the slightest move and it, it's gone. So anyway, Shabbat is a state of being. And that state of being, you know, is just really going into a state of like, you know, like expanding yourself into, into oneness and stability. And like, oh, okay, now I can handle distinction. Now I can... Now I can see distinction and, and approach it properly, as opposed to, as opposed to eating the fruit when I'm not really grounded because I'm so fragile in how, how I even how I even see myself. And and now you want to get throw the world of distinction at me, especially the distinction of good and evil, which is the key distinction, and that that's hot to handle. Whereas on Shabbat, you're going to be there's going to be a much bigger you available to handle the distinction between good and evil. This is one of, it actually, it actually reflects in Jewish law. For example, um, as I mentioned earlier, you have to tithe your produce, right? So what if you're eating at someone's house for Shabbat who doesn't know his elbow from his knee, which is a nice way of saying it, who doesn't know his elbow from his knee in Jewish law, and you're eating his, you know, the food's coming out, and you're like, What's the nature of this food? You know, like, have you tithed the produce that you're, you know, I see all the rice and beans and the, in the cholent and stuff. And did you tithe this stuff? You know, today everyone buys things from the market. So it's, you know, it's got a, it's got a, um, how do you say a hexure, a, a certificate of being tithed already when you buy the rice and the beans and stuff and the potatoes and stuff. But in the olden days where people were harvesting their own food, how do I know this guy tithed this stuff? Now, if he's a Torah scholar, can I be, you know, can I eat his food, Torah scholar? Yeah. Sure, because Torah scholar tithes his food. Now, what if it's a non-Torah scholar? Can I, can I figure he tithed this food, or do I have to ask? No, now i got to ask. Excellent question. Does he keep Shabbat? Yes, he keeps Shabbat. So do I have to ask if he tithed his produce? The answer is yes. Can I believe him? Yeah. No. <laughs> no. No, I can't believe him. I can't believe him. So why did you ask at all? What? Why did you ask at all? Well, you don't ask. What you do is you tithe it on the side of your plate there. You do your own little tithe without him watching. Just a tiny bit. Yeah. If he says to you after the meal, it's like, don't you want to finish? <laughs> a little tiny bit on the side. You're like, like uh, no, I'm feeling nauseous. Just kidding. So... Anyway, but if you why but you want to get to the asking part? Shabbat, you ask him. Did you tithe the stuff? Now during the weekdays you allowed to believe him? No. no. Shabbat, you allowed to believe him? Yes, because he wouldn't lie. He wouldn't lie in Shabbat. Now check this out. He gives you a little doggy bag after lunch. And it's now Saturday night, and you're like, Oh wow, don't I have some chillant in my fridge? You know, from Uzi. And, uh, and you go to your fridge, and there it is. Do you have to tithe it? You ate it. 
gladly Shabbat day believing him. Do you have to tithe it Saturday night? Yeah, you got to tithe it. You got to tithe it Saturday night. But you're allowed to eat it Shabbos day because he wouldn't lie. Now, don't ask why you have to tithe it Saturday night. But it's probably just I'll, I'll, for sorry. I'm for I'm learning. We learn a lot of Talmud, so we like our heads are like bursting with possibilities. So I'm probably out of the Suffolk. I'm not even going to explain that. But yeah, you tithe it Saturday night. Um, where am I at? Why am I even talking about this? Oh, it's Shabbat. Shabbat reflects halachically that even someone who you're normally not allowed to trust for a specific thing like tithing, you can believe him on Shabbat because we're holding in a totally different place on Shabbat. Now, back to, back to our discussion of the fruit. No, someone help me. You guys got to help me. Where am I at? You're not going to be able to get this, so I'll probably get it back before you do, but we're in a race. We're in a competition. Nah, we handled that more or less. If I wind back to Tubishvat, I'll get there. Yes, why food has caused the worst damage in all of history. So you ready? It goes like this. In the, begin- in the beginning when there was a very little population on Earth, so... In the beginning, when there wasn't, you know... I mean, imagine when there was a very little population on the planet. So whatever money you had, you probably... Meaning, whatever you had, there was no money, but whatever you had, it was trading, and you, like, you had a little, you gave to them, they gave to you, it was bartering most of the time. Everything was cool. But then as things grew, so... And it, and it doesn't take a brain, you know, much of a brain to realize that it makes sense to think about the future. We're human beings, you know. Animals generally don't store food, but human beings do because it's we have our eye, eye on the future. And it would be nice to eat the rest of the week, but what's the problem? Food goes bad. We didn't have refrigeration, we didn't have electricity, we didn't have an ability to keep food around. So it makes sense that things would quickly flow into currency because currency doesn't go bad. Which may, in those cases, I shouldn't even say currency. Currency is a little advanced. It could be gold, or silver, copper. You know, it could be anything like that. But after a while, it makes sense for your future that you would have a non-perishable that's tradable. Clear? you got something non-perishable that's tradable. Yeah? How did Joseph store all the food for Egypt? How what? Did Joseph store all the food? Where did he put it all? Yeah, he didn't have refrigerators. No, it was grains. It was grain. Oh, it was grain. Yeah, grain stays. Yeah, he probably had silos for the grain. I think they built silos in Ramses. Yeah, cities had silos. Anyway, you, you, you want non-perishable, but what's the problem? Now that you're gathering wealth, because that's called wealth, because wealth means I can eat tomorrow. I don't have to eat everything fresh. So wealth means I can, you know, I'm wealthy because I've got a week's worth of money to buy food with it and we're going to eat, you know, because I got this. But what's the problem is after a while with that money, you, you need to protect it because there's people who don't have food and they don't have money and you do. And it's gotten, it's gotten kind of clear in town that you got money. And so you need a place to put that money. And so after a while, people put money here, put money there. And, 
and then cities are building, and now there's banks, and then there. But they're, what there really were was, at the beginning, was uh, uh, serfs, serfdoms, and and you know people governing that area, and and you probably would keep your money with them, and you know whatever. It didn't take long before there was political environments that were happening all around, all around money. But what's the problem with that is once you have an area of land, a region that has a certain amount of wealth. So what does it take to protect it? Yeah, well, you're going to have to defend it. And then the next thing you know, you're going to have an army. And, and then it, well, you can just kind of look at the other region and say, I think our army's a little bigger than their army. So even though the army was set up so that you wouldn't have to deal with protecting things because it's protected, it doesn't matter before, not long before that would be war. And that's why you'll notice the word for bread, which is the sustenance of life, the word for bread is lechem, right? And what's the word for war? The word for war is, is milchama. Milchama is war. Okay? So lechem is the sustenance of life, bread. So this word's bread. The bigger word is war. Okay, and you can always leave it to Hebrew to give you like to tell you exactly what's going on. So bread and war are of the same root. Now it's by no coincidence that it's a mem and a hay here, because what's a mem and a hay? Mem and hay is the word what? It's also the word why, because it's like Spanish. Okay, and for what? Yeah? It's what and why. Because if you add a lamed, lema. Spanish and Hebrew work together when it comes to what and why. Okay? Because it's all based on the word K or on the word what. Okay? So the word what happens to have a numerical value of 40 plus 5. Yeah? Which is the same numerical value as what? Adam, which is 1 plus 4 plus 40. So they both equal 45. And uh, normally I put 45 in here, so I put 45. Okay? And, and what is this question? What is, what is the point of Adam, man, as mankind being called Adam, what is the connection of Adam and the word what? And the answer is, is that the whole point of Adam, the whole point of human beings, is to figure out what we're doing here. I mean, God really put us inside this video game, and now we all have to scratch through it to figure out what we're doing here. Like, what's the point of it all? And why would he give us... Where you realize that we are the only beings that are philosophical by nature, and we want to know the answers, and the answer we want to know is, what's the point? What's the point of, the, of it all? And the answer what the point of it all is, is to ultimately realize that we are in a holographic projection called, you know, called God, ultimately. We're in a a holographic divine projection. That's what we're supposed to figure out. Well, once I realize we're in a holographic projection, so then I'm just a projection God, you're just a projection God, you're just a projection God, you're just a projection We're all projections of God. So therefore, I need to figure out if, uh, what's your name? 
if I have to figure out if Victor's eating. So I look at Victor and I see uh, he's, pretty, he's got some meat on him. He's, he looks like he's doing okay. Okay, but if you weren't looking like you're doing okay, so now I got to figure out what's going on with Victor. It's my responsibility because I noticed that he's missed a meal. Let's just say a meal or five. You know, <laughs> so now, so now I got to ask, you okay? And that's that's my responsibility because we're all ultimately projections of the Almighty. We're all projections of the Almighty. <laughs> Since everyone's getting up, so see you soon. You don't have to meet the Rosh Hashima right now. You're good. They were coming for a soundbite. Normally, my soundbite people go in the back, but the uh, but in the there were no seats in the back, so I just said, "Go ahead and sit." Um, anyway, we we have eight minutes left. Our our group. So, the bottom line is is that. Our whole job here is to be spirits inside a material world and to realize the oneness of it all and to care for each other, take care of each other. And you'll notice that what goes wrong with bread, when you add food to the equation, so ma gets, meaning the point of it all, gets separated. You see how ma gets disconnected by bread? Right? We forget ourselves quick. If I could quote a great poem by uh, by uh, Shlomo Karlebach, it goes like this: When I, if 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 I desire bread, I'll lie. If I desire God, I tell the truth. If I desire God. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't. I apologize before when I came in to hear it. <laughs> it's really like I was I was this close to not coming in, but last week I didn't come in twice because of this you know situation of you know catching a flu. So, but I I decided to come in today. And those who are used to listening to me speak normally, I'm like <laughs> a little more put together. Um, but I'm totally foolish right now. If I desire bread, I'll lie. If I desire God, I'll tell the truth. What did you say? You heard the quote differently? Oh, thank you so much. I haven't said it in a long time. You're a really good student. Yeah, what did I say? Oh, I think he said maybe I'm hungry. When I'm hungry for bread, I'll lie. When I'm hungry for God, I tell the truth. When I'm hungry for, for bread, I'll kill. When I'm hungry for God, I give life. When I'm hungry for bread, I'll steal. When I'm hungry for God, I... <laughs> Did I already say get... No, I said give life. When I'm hungry for God, I will give. When I'm hungry for bread, I'm so empty. When I'm hungry for God, I'm so full.
And it's very interesting when you look at when you look at being sated by food. When you look at being sated by food. You're you're you know you're really never satisfied. Because think about it. I'm hungry now, so okay, I'm not satisfied because I'm hungry. And then what do I do? I eat food. But tell me, on your average meal, let's say you're going to sit for an hour and have a meal. How long does it take you to be satisfied? How long does your hunger take to be satisfied if you sit down for a meal? What would you say? Yeah, probably about 10 minutes. So that's done. So what's the rest of the food? That's a good question what the rest of the food is exactly. But it's something other than satisfying. You know, it's, I'm not sure what we're up to exactly. I don't think my wife really appreciates this part of my talk, by the way, because she's the one creating all that food that I'm not sure what the rest of it is. But the, but the, but the bottom line is, is that we're pretty satisfied after f- even five minutes. I would say five minutes. In five minutes, I could have easily eaten two slices of challah, you know, with salads, you know, dipping in salads on Shabbat and stuff, hummus, trina, you know. Uh, I'm done, you know, and then, and then out comes a bunch more food. So it's not really very satisfying, the food. That, again, the five minutes worth is satisfying, and then the other, you know, two hours of gluttony is like, <laughs> it's something, I don't even know what to call it. I, we probably should figure out what we call it since we do it every week, but I'm not sure what I'd call it. Yeah, maybe it's just the pleasure of the food. But here's the thing, is it's not just food that's like this. If you really worked hard for years even to be able to afford a, let's say, a car you always wanted, you're not satisfied during all those years. You're just working to get the thing. Now you finally drive out of the parking lot, you're very satisfied. Very, very satisfied. Um, Has anyone here worked hard to get a car they wanted? Yeah? How long did it last, the satisfaction, until... Just about long enough to pull up to a, a stoplight and have this, the next model come pull up next to you from the following year, you know, which is about a year. I don't know, but would a new car satisfy you for a year or two, maybe? It depends on the person. I would be highly satisfied by that because I drive my cars till they die. So that's that side's fun. He's he's off too. <laughs> it went off. So, anyway, anyone else ever? You gave it about a year? The car smells a bit longer. It's got that smell, yeah, a bit longer. When that wears out, then you've got to get So, anyway, but, that, but that's like so many of us work very hard to get things we want, and then we finally get them, and it's just got the law of diminishing returns right away. You know, it just comes right away, the law of diminishing returns. Whereas when you seek God, and another amazing thing, that it's the same with Torah. With Torah and God, you never get it. Like, you never get it. Like, even the greatest Torah scholars of all time never got all of Torah. So it's really interesting. It's something that you seek, you want to get it, you never get it, and you're always satisfied. You're always saying it's an interesting thing and certainly something you want to pursue because if there's two things on earth that, if there's two things on this earth that you can put your effort into, 
Because everything else you're also going to have to put your effort into, but you won't be satisfied until you get there. And when you finally get there, it's going to have the, you'll have the law of diminishing returns. It th- then starts tracking down, sometimes quite precipitously. If you want to see something cool? Show you something cool. Yeah. Yeah, can you give her her cable back, please? The iPhone cable. So, so I'll show you something cool about the law of diminishing returns. This will explain something amazing. It's the millennial anxiety. Thank you very much. It's the millennial anxiety. You know, why so many millennials feel anxious? And so, check this out. You want to see a millennial anxiety on a chart? So... I'm charting it this way. So it used to be in the old days that it took a long time to achieve something. Like to actually get something took time. And so so you'd work your way up to get the thing you want to get. Yeah. Then you got it. And then, uh, then over time it wore off, you know. It could basically look like that, you know. So it took a while to get it and then it wore off for a while. But by the time it wore off, you were already probably, you know, by here you're already on your next thing. You know, so it basically worked out. And there was even overlap a little bit between things wearing off and you're already working towards the next thing until you're getting that one, you know, up there. But what happened was things in the recent years, you know, the last 50 years plus, 70 years, maybe after war, with financing and stuff where you can get stuff in advance. You know, you can get the nice car and just make payments. And you can get the big house and just pay mortgage and... And you understand, like, you can just get things, and you can go on Amazon and just get stuff, and put, put on your credit card, and, and et cetera, and, and things just got, like, really easily uh, accessible, and, and so it looks more like this. So let's see what that looks like. So the hill to get it, it's going to be, uh, the hill to get it's going to be much steeper, right? And then the, the uh, you know, the enjoyment's going to go precipitously down. Because it's just, you didn't put that much into it, and there's not so much you invested in it, and it's just going to be more precipitous in how it falls. But it also, there's another reason why it's so precipitous. We won't speak about that right now. And then what happens is you, obviously, by here, you're already feeling it, you know, so you're going to be going for something else, yeah? Which is also going to go precipitously down, and then you're going to go for something else, which is also going to go precipitously down, and then you're going to go for something else. And that's also going to go precipitously down, and then you're going to go for something else. And that's also going to go precipitously down. And You get the picture, yeah? Now, check this out. You ready for this? This is going to freak you out. Have you ever seen me do this? Yeah. I haven't done this in a really long time. <laughs> I'm totally out of my mind. Okay. <coughs> anyway, and I didn't even draw it the way it was supposed to be drawn, which is a shame, but... Um, what happens is um, when you're coming down off this one, so when you're coming down off this one, you're coming up. Oops, wrong color. You're coming up off this one. You see there's going to be, yeah? And when you're coming up off this one, uh, I did it right. You're going to be coming down off that one. When you're coming down off this one, you're going to be coming and off that, when you're coming up on this one, you're going to be already there. Yeah, and I could have drawn a better word. Keep going. Anyway, but what you start to notice is that you can't convince yourself anymore after a while that having's worth ha- 
because you're, you're it's hitting too quickly. You understand, like the black line I had drawn over there. Here you can fool yourself that, hey, this is going to be great. Now, of course, it wasn't in the end, but you could trick yourself into it. Whereas when things become so readily available, the you're crossing over the drops of previous acquisitions as you move your way up the next one. And not only that, but you're crossing... Check it out. This guy here is crossing this one, this one, this one. Uh, maybe not that one, but... I'm completely out of my mind at this point. But but I didn't... I By the way, I've... I've I've gotten the flu maybe a couple times in my entire life, but I didn't realize like like going through that you can like boil your brains. <laughs> I need to like I don't know what to even do with myself except for this appointment with the energy healer tomorrow night. Please, God, will bring me back to reality. Oh, really? Hot sauna? I was afraid I didn't have the strength. I thought of that. I thought I'd go into a hot sauna, but I thought I wouldn't be strong enough because I've been really... A dry sauna? Anyway, but you get the point. Is It gets hard to trick yourself. I'll just say it in principle. It gets hard to trick yourself that what you want is worth having. When on your way up, on your way up, you're crossing multiple downs. Like, let's just follow this black line. If you're on your way up, you're crossing this time you were going down, that time you were going down, this time you're going down, this time you're going down. You understand? There's multiple things you're coming off of on your way up. It gets hard to convince yourself after a while that there's anything worth wanting. And hence, you'll find millennial kids highly unmotivated to go for anything because they're not like we were when we were kids and we were dreaming about things that our parents had and like having them ourselves and working towards them it's just not and not to mention the fact that college degrees became less um it, turning a college degree especially if you took loans becomes a hard, uh, a lot less financially advantageous immediately after graduating meaning you're going to need some other degrees or god knows what you need these days but but the uh so that's a big task to get that. And it, it doesn't even come, you know, all you have to do is like go on YouTube for a second about the disappointments about it. And, and you know, you don't have to be a genius to know that you're not going to get much out of your college degree without higher degrees above that, and, which may be fine, but, but it's like that's a lot of work for four years to have something that's not going to be that much worthwhile in the marketplace. And so, anyway, but you, what you wind up with is a bunch of people who feel basically worthless and kind of their lives feel quite meaningless. Underlying the fact, underlining once again the fact that God and Torah are the pursuit. That's what you want to be going after mostly because then you'll have the satisfaction and obviously you've got to make a living so you've got to pay attention to the other stuff too. Yeah? This was uh, just trying to get anything that's other than God or Torah. Anything. It could be anything. Yeah. Except for maybe love. Love, love, because um, love doesn't seem to have a point where it's, where you're done, where you got it. 
Meaning, it's not a chase. It's uh, it's constant deepening. And think about it. You're all. We're all going to marry. You're all. I mean, I'm married. You're going to please God, marry, and and it's going to get deeper and deeper. You know, it's just going to get deeper and deeper if things are going right. Yeah, I mean, we should all be accomplishing in, in our world of doing. And, and the, There's nothing even wrong with going for these. These are all great. It's just that this, I was just explaining why people find themselves so unmotivated. And maybe perhaps if someone has gotten to her properly aligned in their system, that, that they uh, now, okay, everything now files into gotten to her. Because I do want to work so that I can have food in my fridge so that I can make Shabbat meals. And maybe even have a few guests over. So it starts to work like that. Okay, everyone. Um, happy Tuvish Fat. Sorry about the crazy class today. And, uh, and uh, what else can I want to say to y'all? Um, I don't know what else to say. Find yourselves a Tuvish Fat Seder and uh, go for it. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.